Welcome to the Podglomerate. For everything that you were too afraid to ask at home, too embarrassed to ask at school, or was just too hard to ask your partner, welcome to the Sex Wrap. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to The Sex Wrap. You're here with Spring and Andrew, as always, here to talk to you about sex, relationships, sexual health, love, anything you want to talk about. How are you, Andrew? I am in my 12th week. Is this our 12th week of quarantine? I'm fine. A little bit crazy, a little bit stir crazy, but I'm doing okay. The world is not okay, but I'm pretty good with the world not being okay because I think some good things are coming from it. And I think we're going to talk about that a lot this week and next week and for the foreseeable future every single week. So, yeah. 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 So I'm really excited. I mean, last week we got to talk about racism and relationships. And I think that that is something a lot of people, you know, have a lot of questions about. And then today we're going to talk a little bit about racism and sexual health. And I think um, as we start to really open up these topics, we get a lot and lot more questions also, right? (laughs) I mean, it's one of those things where we have hundreds and well, we probably have thousands of questions in the queue. And with all of the events going on in the world, like these ones are definitely taking a priority. And I think one of the, the most important things that we can do is actually start listening to the experiences of Black people and people of color in our lives. And that's exactly what we were talking about last week. And we're going to continue that this week because we have a very special guest. So Spring, uh, who did you invite to join us today? So I'm so excited. We have um, Dr. Lynn Roberts on our show with us today. And um, Lynn is a colleague of mine. She works at the School of Public Health um, at CUNY with me. And I have just always admired Lynn so much when I met her about five years ago when I started at CUNY. Um, She just has this way of carrying herself within the school that um, makes you want to be her friend and also trust everything she says and also just know that she's someone to go to when you have a question or when you need help because she just always stands up for what she thinks is right and stands up for all the people that don't have a voice in um, in our school and in the world. And that's something that I admire about her so much. Um, she's done a lot of research um, in the areas of, well, she'll talk a bit about that probably today, um, about sexual health and young people and specifically thinking about um, how race impacts sexual health in young people. And she's now our Associate Dean for Student Affairs and Alumni Relations at the School of Public Health. And I just, I love that she has that role now because I think that's one of her strengths as being an advocate and advocating for our students is um, just such a such a benefit for our students, actually. So welcome to the show, Lynn. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> to be here. Would you like to share anything specific about your background or um, introduce yourself in any way? Sure. Um, first and foremost, I identify as a reproductive justice scholar activist and um i'll explain a little more what what that all means but i'm also a proud um grandmother and mother um which i consider really important and i try my best to be a a very um dedicated steward of the planet (laughs) thank you and then I have titles and things like that and have a day job and such. But I think that's how I most like to 
introduce myself to people. <laughs> and more recently, I will say I'm an abolitionist. Thank you. So today we um, have this really broad topic that we're going to get into. And I just want to kind of open this up for everybody to begin with. And so right now, um, all we are talking about is Black Lives Matter. And if, if you're not talking about Black Lives Matter, um, why aren't you? That is what um, everybody needs to kind of have on their tip of their tongue right now. So today we're going to say, what does Black Lives Matter have to do with sexual health? And that's where we're just going to open up this discussion today. I mean, everything. I mean, <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe not everything, but close to everything, right? I mean, if we start talking about like the lives of people and the way that they're impacted, Black Lives Matter is a movement about equity and it's a movement about making right. And it's an, I mean, Lynn, why don't you go? <laughs> Why don't you go? Because I'm about to pop off and I'm going to hold back for a minute and invite our guests to talk about the issue. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you, Andrew and Spring, um, for the for the for the question. What does Black Lives Matter have to do with sexual health? Uh, I do think it's it's everything, but that's because, you know, we often don't think of sexual health in the context of um, not just what people do in their private, intimate moments, but also that sexual health is, is a part of every human being. And oftentimes, um, I would say of, of all of humanity that unfortunately and historically, um, there have been, you know, sexual, uh, assumptions made about the black body. Um, it's been well documented how often, um, you know, black women have been perceived in, you know, tropes and memes that suggest we, we either um, have too much sex, that we castrate our men, that we're, you know, dominant um, figures, um, you know, the matriarch who, whose family suffer because of that. Um, so all of these, these, these tropes, um, these stereotypes, is that a better word spring? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, these, these ways of categorizing who we are and, and demonizing, you know, portraying us negatively, um, and not, you know, as whole human beings capable of all the range of, you know, humanity for better and for worse that, that perhaps others are permitted to be, you know, kind of just re, you know, limiting, um, people's perceptions of, of who we are. And, and, you know, I've talked mostly about, um, the, you know, thinking about that in a very gender specific way about, um, black women, but it's also, you know, similar, um, associations with black men, um, also over seemingly, you know, sexually, um, even down to parts of their bodies being, um, differently endowed than, than other men, um, that they are the ones who, who rape white women, um, all of these dangerous things that also tie into this very moment um, about people's perceptions of, 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 of threat, 
uh, of harm and that that's justification for people to be killed by vigilantes in North Carolina, by um, police officers in Minneapolis, and to be to have the police called um, by a, a white woman in Central Park. So that's the wide range of ways in which um, sexual sexuality, if not sexual health, get associated with the black body. I was having a conversation earlier today that really, uh, that what you said just really kind of resonated with me. Um, so uh, I see this movement Black Lives Matter going on and I see black women out there protecting and like constantly protecting, protecting everybody they can see, protecting stores, protecting families, protecting churches, protecting other women in their lives, protecting men, their children, their community. And it makes me think like sometimes I think Black Lives Matter is about protecting those black women as well, because I think that's the, the one shield that's sort of missing sometimes in these broader movements, because we talk a lot about protecting black men. We talk a lot about some of those other issues. And black men absolutely need protection. But I think sometimes the the conversation moves away. And I really love how you started the conversation talking about like women and contextualizing women and how important women and, and women and women's sexuality is to Black Lives Matter as well. Absolutely. And, you know, just to, to pick up on that, Andrew, I was I'm just reminded of how much we talked. Like I asked myself in this moment, why? the extrajudicial killing. That means this was a man who didn't, you know, wasn't charged with a crime and, and, and was executed um, on camera um, without, um, you know, being, you know, brought to trial if there was anything to bring him to trial for. Um, but we don't have the same conversations or it doesn't stir as much outrage as, as, um, Brianna, you know, Taylor's death, right? So, and why is that? So you're, you're exactly right. There's a song um, that I hope I, I quote correctly. Um, I think it was really a poem, but also a song that one of my favorite jazz artists, um, Abby Lincoln, who will revere the black woman? Um, mm. Because it seems that's really hard to come by. And we can put a link to that song uh, yeah. in the in our notes as well. So uh, yeah, when you're listening to the episode, powerful. you can take a... Yeah. Absolutely. I, I'll put it... Um, I'll share that with you. And I love that you brought up some of these stereotypes um, and, you know, thinking about... In sexuality, we have a lot of stereotypes, um, specifically, you know, kind of about these roles that we think people play in different relationships and those apply in, you know, when we're thinking about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and, and yeah, definitely within race, there's all these stereotypes. And what, what would you say, because you're talking about some of these stereotypes and talking about, you know, how harmful they can be. What would you say to someone who says, well, stereotypes exist for a reason? Like what is, what, what's the answer? Well, I've heard it, you know, said, you know, stereotypes exist for a reason and that we all naturally as human beings have to categorize things to make the world more manageable, right? To, to digest um, to understand things better. Um, and I would just say that, um, if, if that's indeed the case, they're, they're not applied equally like that, that, that 
thought isn't applied equally. It's just as disproportionately applied as as the as the harm is, right? Um, so that would be all well and good if you didn't see. You know, I th- the best analogy I have is if you look at um, the arts or television and film. So you have you know various genres of film, and also in a, any particular film, you have a variety of characters. If the majority of characters in a single you know, film depiction, you have about 12, you know, different types of characters, but only one of them is a black person. Then that's the same, you know, thing that you, you don't see that range of mm-hmm. possibilities of, of humanity existing until you have more people, you know, writing the scripts, you know, producing the films, having them aired. You know, I grew up in a time, you know, today's an exciting time. That's probably not the best example because there's so much wonderful, you know, film representation now compared to the past. Still not what the larger, you know, catalog is that exists because of funding and support and all of that. Um, But I remember when that wasn't the case and what it was to be in a classroom growing up as a young child where I was the only child in my entire elementary school. None of my children had fortunately had to experience that and my grandchildren even less so. But just to imagine that and for, for some folks not to know what that means so that whenever that you're the only frame of reference people have for black mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. So any stereotype and to grow up and have people say, well, you, but you're not black. You know, you're not, you're not because well, whatever they thought of black people that they got from whatever limited perception they had, or maybe none at all, just what their parents told them then that's, that's where it's dangerous. So stere- I don't see any purpose to stereotypes. I think we all have to be in relation with one another and correct the misinformation that people receive or the, or fill the gap of information from what people don't receive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, stereotypes are everywhere, but I think one of the most wonderful things about growing as a human being is that you can acknowledge that, yeah, you, you've made some generalizations and yeah, you've had some stereotypes fed to you by parents, church, media, it doesn't matter where they come from. And that you have the choice, like you have the option to go and say, wait, hold on, I'm making this kind of generalization, not based off of the person I'm talking to, but based off of a movie that I saw 10 years ago, or one person at a gross, like whatever the the stereotype is based off of. So like, mm-hmm. we have the power to kind of overcome that. But we have to we have to work on it. We have to try. And that's like real effort, especially, you know, there's a lot of people who grow up their entire lives without much exposure, right? And without any exposure, those stereotypes really become hard to challenge. But I think that's another thing I really like about Black Lives Matter is that if you are there and you're in the conversation and you're thinking about it, you get to challenge those misconceptions and yeah. And I just called stereotypes misconceptions. So, (laughs) yeah. And I think that, you know, that's actually a really good introduction to some of the questions we're going to dive into today because some of these are based in stereotypes, um, but then also like what part of them is true and what part of them isn't and why, why are the parts that are true? Why, why are they true? And we'll be right back after a short break to talk about the rest of the show. Thanks everyone. All right. 
So we've been talking about the relationship between Black Lives Matter and race, and we've been talking about stereotypes, and we've been talking about uh, a lot of issues that are pertinent to what's going on in the world right now. And I say right now, I think issues that are pertinent for the last 400 plus years in the United States and probably the last 6,000 years of society, the kind of stereotypes that people make. Um, But I love that that we're talking about it today. Um, And Spring, we have a couple questions that are going to dig a little bit deeper. So what are those today? So um, the first question is, why do people of color start having sex at younger ages? And I am just so excited for Lynn to dig into this because I think she's going to attack the question a little, which is something we like to do a lot as well. Say, well, what's really happening with this question? So Lynn, why do people of color start having sex at younger ages? Well, first of all, I I do challenge the question itself as to why people believe that's true. And, you know, is it informed from their own experience Uh, where they've observed this? Is it from what they see or read in magazines or newspapers or on the news? Is it um, from from data that they've looked at and maybe studied in the classroom or on their own? Um, So I, I do wonder why people are curious about this. And is it is it something people believe before they've looked at any evidence, you know, because mm-hmm. that, that matters to me. Um, I do want to challenge, you know, who do people mean when they say people of color? <laughs> um, and I like for people to be more precise um, and, and in their preciseness to be able to, um, you know, do people self-identify as people of color? Um, are you talking about black people? talking about, um, you know, brown people, Latino, uh, Latinx, um, Hispanic people all lumped together uh, because I think there are, there could be different patterns. And then just why we even want to study sexuality by race in the first place. Is it because we think there are these differences? Is it because we want to be able to um, provide better, you know, sexual education Um, I think a lot of the concern with earlier or an earlier is all relative, Um, you know, to be able to think and and be sexual beings. We're sexual beings from the beginning of life. And to be able to think of when it when does it become not a good thing is, of course, when people think of a particular type of sex and then concerns about sex that leads to consequences that they're fearful of. So, um, and I don't mean only um, pregnancy or STIs, sexually transmitted infections, um, but I think more around people thinking that it's a a moral failing to have sex at a young age. Um, And we created this period in the lifespan called adolescence and created this period of time when people aren't supposed to be sexual beings. And... Yet, um, when I think of my own grandparents, um, you know, my, my maternal, paternal grandmother was a parent at 16. I was a, I was a parent on the eve of my 18th birthday. By the time I gave birth to my first child, that was one of the worst things you could do in America, is <laughs> what was known as a teen parent. Um, 
I think in 1979, it was worse or as bad as being a communist, just to put it in <laughs> historical perspective. And, and yet my grandmother, who was younger than me, because she married the man with whom she became pregnant, did not experience what I experienced in terms of the shame and the degradation, the, the, the expectation that my life would be ruined. And that was within my family, within this larger society. Those are difficult things to carry. And you ask yourself why, and I have to tell you personally, I thought, wow, I waited till I was a certain age to even have sex. I considered myself compared to my peers, many of them white, young women of the same age to have much more sexual experience than me. Um, but decisions I made around my sexuality um, and then being a black woman, uh, black, black young person, um, were not regarded in the same way. And also because of the choice I made to have a child as opposed to my peers who might have been having much more sex, maybe even better sex, <laughs> who, who didn't, that didn't lead to them becoming parents. Mm. I don't know if that answers that question, but I, I think specifically it's more around why do people even ask that question? Yeah. And we know that um, when we are looking at like research studies, so a lot of times, you know, in the show, we'll reference something that comes out of data that we then perceive to be as more correct information, right? And when we are looking at research studies, um, traditionally, um, we have measured race. So we have asked people what their race is, and then we use that to help us make sense of the data. And we know that race um, matters very much in America, um, but it doesn't always matter in the way that a scientist thinks it matters when they're um, explaining the study, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when I saw this question come in, it really got me thinking, uh, like, our listener, like, where did you get this question? Why is this important enough for you to send to us? And then what are you going to do with this kind of information? Like, so when I saw it, like, you know, I think here's the news and it's showing me like that old trope, right? That old picture that they've been showing since the 80s of pregnant teenagers in urban settings who are trying to get welfare from the government, all like that welfare queen mentality from the 80s. It just seems to me like this is someone doubling down on probably bad information and bad data. And I I mean, I really like what Lynn did with the answer as well. I mean, thank you for sharing your personal experiences. It's, it's, a question that I don't think helps unless you're talking about prevention. Like if it was asked from the room, like what can we do to help prevent unwanted teen pregnancy for people of color? That's a whole different question. And that one I would love to talk about. We could start talking about defunding of schools and we could start talking about sexuality education that's targeted. But this question doesn't go in that direction. This is just like, why is this happening? And I think the prevention component is probably a piece of it too. But um. And I- yeah. And I also think the question is, what are we trying to prevent and why? So the whole concept of an unwanted pregnancy isn't as really isn't of concern to me as much as an unsupported pregnancy. And I really think this is they're very distinct. So an unsupported pregnancy is a pregnancy that is unsupported by 
that, you know, the person who can become pregnant, because we know not only cisgendered um, females become pregnant, um, but to consider the partner, the family, the community, might be the school, the larger society, and then get structural to the, the actual concrete policies. So unsupported pregnancy is a problem. So when they compare the data between those who have early, early uh, who become parents at a young age and those who become parents at an older age and they look at their, their, their life outcomes, they look at what, you know, how much income they have as older adults and maybe some health factors, health outcomes as well. What they never consider is, well, what was going on for that person, that individual person on all those levels of support? Mm. So in my instance, becoming pregnant at 17 probably saved me from a lot of worse consequences for me and my trajectory. And I'll tell you why. I was, you know, um, very disengaged from school at the time because of racism (laughs) <laughs> that growing up from the, being the only black child in my elementary school to going through middle school, those, those years, um, which was called junior high back then and into high school and realizing that the curriculum didn't acknowledge me and my, my communities made me angry. And it made me so angry that I, I, I didn't respect my teachers cause I didn't think they respected and valued me or my, or my other um, peers who were also um, African-American and Latino. And, um, and in that moment, parents were divorced. I was, you know, I started dating someone. I dated him for three years before we even had sex. That's pretty, you know, I thought that was, you know, you know, I don't even say that's impressive. Maybe it just is, you know? Oh, that is very, very impressive. (laughs) And, uh, and I get, let me correct that. We didn't have intercourse, you know? Um, so my point was to say that that disengagement and having a lot of freedom because my parents were divorced and my father was a permissive parent who didn't monitor me that much. I could have gone down a a very different path. Let me just say that. But becoming pregnant at that age woke me up to another human that I was responsible for. I moved in with my mom who was in another town. I, um, and because she was more strict, if you will, um, and I'm pregnant, um, and I went to a high school in another, in an urban environment where I'd grown up in Pennsylvania in the suburbs, um, got, um, in a school that was, that had metal detectors and that was foreign to me. I didn't know that experience before. Um, there were rumors that pregnant girls were being pushed down the stairs by their peers, but I found this black woman teacher who ran this program for, 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 for parenting and for pregnant and parenting teens in the, in the high school. And that was my OASS within that school. I was able to really get a lot of education about becoming a parent. Do you know that most adults never get that education about becoming a parent that I got at a young age? I was going to go to American university and study business. And if I had done so, I, and I thought because, you know, I should study business to make a lot of money to support this child I was now responsible for. Well, that summer after I graduated, I, my daughter was born in April of 79. And 
I graduated in June. I had enough credits from my Pennsylvania school. Again, disparities, racial disparities, DC being a largely, you know, you know, black African-American, you know, community at that time compared to where I grew up in a predominantly white community, very different resources um, and, and racism, <laughs> um, diff- different versions of it um, that I was um, spending that summer home, you know, at home with my daughter, fell in love with her and someone knocked on my door because I gave birth at Howard University Hospital. And wanted to. I was part. I was recruited for a study about teen parents. So I tell this story to my students that I my foray into research was that I began as a research subject, and this is true. And because everyone wanted to know about teen pregnancy at that time, so I became this research subject. Woman came to my house, a master's student um, studying psychology, I think, to ask me a whole lot of questions to find out how a nice girl like me got pregnant, basically. <laughs> I remember thinking, you know, these questions have nothing to do. I didn't know at the time she was asking me questions about things called locus of control and self-esteem. I didn't know that at the time, but I knew, I learned later. So locus of control, this idea that you are the, you know, master of your, of what happens, you're in control of everything that happens to you as opposed to, you know, internal versus external locus of control. So you either think that everything happens to you, you you're responsible for it, or you think it's re- that other things, you know, outside Predestined. of you are for it. And uh, thank you. So, so after she finished asking me all these questions, I asked her a few questions like, where are you from? And why are you asking me all these questions? <laughs> and uh, she told me she was from Howard University and she was in this, this school of human ecology studying this, you know, subject and I turned my life around. I decided I could ask better questions. I, uh, I uh, switched gears. I took, I deferred my enrollment at American and took that year off to, to spend with my daughter who gets to do that and collect welfare. That's a beautiful thing. You know, that's, that's why you should, right? Who shouldn't be home with their child during those early periods of their life. I, decided to study human development. That's that's what the program was. I think we and, need to do a whole episode on like the way women are mistreated after birth. Treated well until birth and then after birth, like go back to work. You don't get to spend any time. Like it's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But this idea that, that that's a better outcome. And I you know I could go on with my story about, you know, my trajectory, but again, I don't know that that would have happened if I hadn't become pregnant. Mm. Like I can't predict, like maybe I would have, but it might've, I might've gone through something in the meantime, you know, uh, you know, very differently. I might've developed some, some, some habits that might not have, you know, led me to college. I don't know. Um, but, but I was so focused as a parent on that campus. And the only thing that made that possible was that my mother didn't put me out of the house. I I, that I used my welfare benefits, you know, for that purpose. Um, when I went to close my case to go on to graduate school, the caseworker said, I didn't know you could do that and go to college, go to graduate school. I said, I bet you never told anyone else on your caseload either, you know, and that, that's where that structural stuff comes into play. And we know that more people who are white are on welfare and receive those benefits. But that's not the story that's told. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the whole basis of the question that we've been talking about. Yeah. 
It is. <laughs> well, we need to take a short break, but we'll be right back with another question that fits perfectly. So here we go. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Um, so we've been talking about race. We've been talking about Black Lives Matter. We've been talking about this question about why are people of color having sex earlier? Um, and the answer we gave you is that it's probably a bad question and you should think about why you're asking it. Um, and that there's all kinds of systems, levels of racism that we need to get into. And um, I kind of want to jump to question, uh, the third question for today. Uh, so uh, and it's linked, right? So why are there more single moms of color? And I would love, Lynn, for you to just elaborate a little bit on when we said um, people of color in that first question, you um, started to talk a little bit about what does that phrase mean and how it's kind of being used. Um, and I would love for you to talk about that a little bit more as you as we start this conversation about um, single mothers. Sure, sure. So, so it, I, I actually know the origin of the use of women of color from Loretta Ross, who's one of my, my sheroes, who, which was really intended to unify um, African-American women in the U.S. with other groups who were also facing similar struggles. So they, they use that term to embrace each other in solidarity to fight, you know, systemic oppression and, and whatnot. And there's a longer story and I can send a link to some of her, you know, telling you more about that. Um, and so when, but when people lump it, lump it, but, you know, use the term, it seems to lump people who have very distinct histories and um, communities and, and lived experiences um, in the U.S. and elsewhere, of course, so that it, it, it can mean different things to different people. And I also know that sometimes there's a there's a, another group of people that gets included there that also would rather be a little more self-determining, and that's our, our indigenous um, family. So um, it's not always clear who it means, but it's better than some terms I grew up hearing, like <laughs> being... Um, non-white, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Everyone who wasn't white was non-white. Like, okay, so you'd be defined by what you are not, not by who you are. And, and that's problematic. So, but I also think people do need to be specific who they do mean. And that right now in this moment, as we talk about Black Lives Matter, it's that there is a unique experience that, that, that Black people have, have had historically and have in the present moment, um, that needs to be declaratively stated. Um, and I guess in this question, I, I just wonder about the question being asked at all, however they however they describe us. I mean, I, I think as we move forward, we should probably answer this question, like why are there more black single moms? Because I think that fits really well with the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, from the, your personal narrative and story that you've been telling, as well as uh, the way that we answered the first question. So moving forward, I think, and. Okay, so I saw this question. I'm going to go off for just one second. People of color, single moms, um, Asian American women are also people of color and they have the lowest rate. So whatever. Um, yeah, yeah can, absolutely. So, right. 
you can cherry pick the data. You can like, like when you're watching the news or the media and they say something kind of funny, you really need to look at the data, especially if they're grouping, clumping people together because it gets really messy and it doesn't answer the question effectively. And what do you mean by single? Do you mean unmarried or do you mean unpartnered? Um, they're not the same. And, and does one necessarily mean you are you know, thriving better than the next, right? And I think there is such a wide range of, of that experience. I've been every probably, you know, combination. I've been a, you know, unmarried young parent, because I prefer that to saying teen parent, um, because I, I also feel, I didn't feel like being a teen was definitive of, of who I was at that age. Um, I've been married with children, and I've been divorced with children. <laughs> the only thing I haven't been as an adult is a single unattached person. <laughs> um, you know, unattached without, you know, uh, and, you know, my own head of household. But I do think there is a, I think the, like you pointed out, Andrew, what that means for, for different groups different racialized groups. And that's the other thing. We, we use these categories as if they aren't all socially constructed, um, you know, because even within any one group of people, there's so many variations. So to, to even describe Asian Americans as if, a, if that's a monolith, um, black people are not a monolith because we come from all over the globe, just like anyone else. I mean, I teach in Miami, I teach health disparities courses and, uh, we have a whole three-hour seminar where we try to figure out what we're going to call Black people in the classroom. And I'm in Miami, so we have Bahamians, we have Afro-Caribbeans, we have Haitians, we have Black, we have African-American, we have African-African, Nigerian, South African in the same classroom. And uh, what we do at the end when, we, when we're talking about it is we're like, you know what? We're just going to call you people and we're going to kind of end it there for our class. Yeah, I mean... And that's not really where it ends for the semester, but it's really complicated. And even if you just say black, it doesn't have the meaning that I think most people attribute to it. Because like you said, Lynn, it's it's socially constructed. It's not a biological term. It's not a real term. It's kind of this term that we create in our heads and then put upon others. And that's where Black Lives Matter comes in, because it's saying declaratively, you know, it is also an identity. But when people are using it in these questions, even when they're not using it explicitly, and that's who they mean, right? Um, they're not they're not speaking about who we are as a people. There's thinking of us in those stereotypical ways, and and in problematic ways, and either as a drain, an economic drain on society, <laughs> or a threat to other people's well-being, as opposed to, as you described so, you know, well earlier, Andrew, as, as, as people deserving protection. And that's what Black Lives Matter is about, that, that we deserve protection. Mm. Our episode next week is going to be about how to be an ally and like learning to be a good ally. And I think we're going to really dig deep into that, like, what is your role in helping the Black Lives Matter movement and the gay pride movement and all of these other um, movements about protecting people? 
And I think that protection moment, it, it's here and it's right now. And it's about activating ourselves to, you know, like we're on the front line and we need to be the ones for once standing up and protecting as allies. So, yeah. Oh. And yeah. And being an ally is about a lot more than that, too. It's about also, um, you know, dismantling systems like where we have the power, where we are able to say, you know, this isn't OK. And that's I think that is like, you know, protection is a great first step. And then there's like a much larger jump above that that we really need to be doing. Or they're all simultaneous. Right. So you're exactly right, Spring. And that that next step is really to um, the dismantling part. <laughs> of structural racism. A large part of dismantling structural racism is for white people to dismantle white supremacy among white people. Yep. Uh, so could you tell us uh, for a minute, like, uh, so you just said structural racism, um, yeah. and we've never really talked about that on our show explicitly. We've kind of talked about different kinds of uh, structural discrimination and marginalization that sexual and gender minorities face. Um, but could you talk for just a, a minute about what structural racism looks like so people have a better idea of what it what it is and maybe they can start, you know, working to dis dismantle it? Well, it's embedded in our society. That means it's it's infused throughout. It's 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 in the air. It's in the water. You know the <laughs> the air we breathe, the water we drink. Just like this virus, you know, the virus of you know Corona um, nineteen. We also have a virus of racism. And I use that analogy. If you think of it that way, then um, everyone's exposed. Because if you think of it as it's it's in the, the air, the ether, um, not everyone gets infected. And not everyone who gets infected gets infected to the same degree. But all of us are exposed to it. Like that's how this pandemic, they're both, they're twin pandemics. They're happening simultaneously they're both impacting us in similar patterns of, of disparity and inequity. Um, but it, it really, to say that it's structural means that it's in the institutions, it's in our um, economic, educational, um, all orders of, of our society. And, and to dismantle it really means examining all of that. And it's, it's in how we, it's in our media, it's in our, um, the books we read or the books we're, we're asked to read, our curricula in our school. Mm. Um, it's in our, um, it's just coming at us from everywhere at any given moment. And the only way to, to, to address like with any problem is you have to first acknowledge that that is the problem and then we tackle it by, you know, brick by brick, um, piece by piece. Um, and then we have to build something in its place. So it's never enough to tear something down. So folks today are talking for the first time in my lifetime about um, abolition, a word that hasn't been used since the abolishment of slavery. And that's significant because there are people who are saying, 
well, you can't use that word. We can't abolish something like the police. But it's not about just the police. It's about how we police. It's about the fact that we don't consider um, public safety, which is more of a public health response to real to providing protection to all communities. We, I hope we know, and maybe some of us don't, that our current system of policing evolved from slave patrols in the antebellum South was to capture runaway slaves or what I prefer to say enslaved people because none of us are born slaves. So I don't identify any of my ancestors as slaves. They were enslaved people because that also points the the finger back at the fact that they were enslaved by someone else. Mm. You call them slaves, you don't hold responsible and accountable the person who enslaved them or the people who enslaved them. And this isn't about individual white people saying, I, you know, my, you know, that's what my ancestors did. I didn't do that. Why are you still talking about it? It's about looking that that was a system. Slavery was an economic system. And we abolished it. We said it was wrong. And it was abolitionists who were not, who some of whom were not enslaved saying that. So if we look at the analogy today, that that police force didn't evolve very far away from that. Mm. And the, this moment, people are saying this is the first period of arrest, of unrest on this, on this magnitude. No, the summer of 1967 was pretty much like this. The difference is those, those, those riots of 1967, and you can study this, and I'll provide a link that gives you some of the history, at least from the part of New Jersey where I spent some of my, that summer as a young child, so I was born in 61. I was only six years old. My granddaughter's that age. I can't even imagine her, you know, experiencing what some people experienced then. And I remember being, you know, visiting cousins, even though I was in Pennsylvania, coming to New Jersey to visit cousins and us not being able to go outside to play because Newark was on fire and the police were patrolling every, every neighborhood. There was a commission appointed by President Johnson at that time called the Kerner Commission to study this. And they brought in different leaders and faith leaders, and they came up with some recommendations. Some of them talked about the same things we're talking about now, you know, improve the schools and do these things. They used some awful language like urban, they called it the urban, urban, and they used terms like ghetto to describe the black community at that time. But the only piece of recommendation of the recommendations that to this day was funded was the surveillance to prevent more um, what they called disorder, to control disorder. So they never wanted black people to be that angry again and to set, you know, cities on fire. And I, I say that because that's not that long ago. That's in my lifetime. So I do remember it. I remember the fear, the apprehension of my elders who knew more of what was going on at the time. This moment feels different only because it seemed to be a wider conversation. Maybe we have more analysis, but I don't know that we have any more will to take it to that, to the, towards closer to abolishment, I mean, abolition, than towards reforms that just basically put a a Band-Aid on a, a, a deeper problem. I have a weird relationship with technology. I don't like social media very much. I don't do any, 
this show, we do t- tons of social media, like we're on it. I think cell phones, Lynn, I think cell phones and mass recording. And I think people being different. able to show what br- police brutality looks like to everybody across the entire globe. I think that's really what's helping maintain the pressure. And I think that's really building a lot of allies because there's a lot of people who plausible deniability, like, oh, I don't think it's really that bad. Oh, you know, it's the city. Oh, it's oh, it's the welfare queen mother from 1980s television. And she got pregnant when she was 16. Like all of those tropes in the back of their head. I think cell phone recording, I don't know. It's really crazy that it's it's here and it's in your living room and it's in your face and it's on your social media feed and you can't get away from it. And that's one of the other reasons I love what's happening right now because uh, between 1967 and today, like it's permanent and, and you can't scrub it off of the internet and you can't get rid of that message. And it's a strong message, right? It, it, it is a complete repudiation of systemic racism. Like it's happening and like, I love how you phrased it, like the will to really make that next step of change rather than just put a bandaid on a wound. But I think I think we can do it if we all work together. I think I think we're close or closer than we've been in a long time. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it is so true that like having this documented evidence is so powerful because of racism, we have the people in power, like all these police chiefs and things are white men. And so what would normally happen was people would come with these testimonies talking about police brutality. And then just the word of the police chief saying, no, that doesn't happen here, just squashes all of the thousands of stories that black people And any other person who has experienced this are sharing, you know, as these examples. And so I think that is really true that, you know, we have this, these things that can't be denied now. We have um, things that we can really show and point to and say, um, well, we have, everybody can see this evidence. And I think that is um, really powerful and it's exciting to be able to, um, challenge the systems that racism exist in as well at this time. Absolutely. And just to point out a clarification about white supremacy, when I use that term, that that is embedded in our society in such a way that, um, how, how can I say this? Um, those who are not white subscribe to it as well. So we maybe call that internalized, but you know, even within police forces, the police force as um, you know, surveillance of black communities is not only perpetrated by white officers. Mm-hmm. If you look at the cases when police brutality has been brought to trial and there aren't nearly enough as the data suggests of what actually happens, those who tend to be brought to trial first are gonna be those officers who are of color themselves. Mm-hmm. So even within a system, <laughs> that, you know, prioritizes um, whiteness and is anti-blackness, those systems built on white supremacy also implicate blacks and other people of color in in damaging ways. And I want to mention that when we're saying words like privilege and white supremacy and blackness and whiteness. None of this is blame based. None of this is uh, saying that like you're a bad person because of this, right? You are born into the system. And we're talking about you have the ability to work 
and change that system, right? So we're not saying that this is your fault. We're not saying that like you're a white supremacist. We're not saying you have a hood on your head. Like that's not what any of these words mean. And that's not how we're talking about any of It's describing the system that we're all a part of and we're all impacted by. And white people are impacted um, as much as as black people. Well, not the same ways, but as much as. Um, So it's embedded in in ways that that are harmful to, to white people too. And it's like you were talking about, like comparing it to coronavirus. Um, it's like the ways that it's sneaky is in the ways that you don't even realize that it's affecting you. Right. And so like you're talking about this idea of white supremacy, which is the notion in our society that white people are better and they're better in whatever way. But this idea is that it's promoted through movies. It's promoted through things we learn in school. It's promoted through all of these systems and and you don't even realize that you're being taught this, right? So that's why it is so comparable to think about it as like this virus that like you don't even know that you might be exposed to it, but it's still affecting you. I mean, just go to Barnes and Noble, go to the children's book section and just pick any 10 random books and look at the characters inside of those books, like random books. And what you will see is that almost unequivocally, you see happy stories of white people. And if there's a person of color or a black person inside of that book, it's usually going to be an urban setting, a completely different kind of book. And that's starting to change a little bit, but that's what we're talking about. It's a system where the only people you see, like you only get one view of people, it builds stereotypes. And it's because there's this system. Absolutely. And it's also that the, it's also what it doesn't teach. It also tells lies about those people, about the, the, about the white community. So I say, you know, I think I wrote a paper, it was like a media analysis paper when I was an undergraduate. And I said something to the effect, you know, there were these shows that would come on that people said were, were stereotypical of blacks, right? That what they were black exploitation films, things like that, Superfly and um, whatnot. Um, but then I said, yeah, but the Waltons don't exist in white America either. <laughs> you know, like the things that that we grew up on about white families weren't the whole truth. They didn't tell about things going on in white families that might have helped them better to um, understand issues like, you know, childhood sexual abuse. Right. That was happening or what was happening in 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 churches in the in the Catholic Church. And, you know, if you follow me. So that denial is just as dangerous. So if you're mm-hmm. focused on black people being, you know, the source of all the problems in society and you aren't looking at what you need to fix in your own, that's problem too. You know, again, what's the full range of humanity that all of us, you know, I also, you know, don't buy subscribe to this idea that, you know, everyone in anyone's particular culture, you know, needs to be lifted up as they only produced, you know, these, you know, you know, epic beings, you know, who, who are, you know, this whole conversation right now about Columbus, you know, you can't find some other Italian Americans to lift up other than him. You know, I'm sure there's gotta be some, let's find them. Um, (laughs) And, you know, you can still have your, your, your cultural pride, but where's the pride for, um, you know, the folks who, who, who weren't about their pride at the expense of someone else's. 
I had a really funny conversation about the Confederate flag yesterday um, where people are like, it's my legacy and my grandfather and my great grandfather. And I'm like, well, your great grandfather must have had his kid when he was four years old because the Confederacy was only around for less than five years. Like, that's not a legacy. Nirvana. Now I'm aging myself. I'm going to get an OK Boomer from it. But Nirvana lasted longer than the Confederacy. So, I mean, there's all of this stuff out there and a lot of unlearning that we need to do um, and then rebuilding. I really like that. That's the important step. Like we need plans to rebuild and make this happen. All right. So I think we're just about at the end of the episode today. Um, And uh, Lynn, we end our episode with just the tip uh, where we all kind of try to come up with a closing thought. Um, or a take-home message. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to say to our listeners today? Well, I said earlier that I am a, um, what did I say? <laughs> I identify as a social, as a reproductive justice um, social activist. And so my, my, my scholar activist home is within the reproductive justice movement, but it's also often referred to as the sexual and reproductive justice movement. And if you aren't familiar um, the term reproductive justice was coined by 12 black women um, who were just looking for um, a way to, you know, crystallize for themselves um, what they were witnessing uh, in the world at that time. And and sometime after that, um, the sister song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, as it's now called, um, described uh, or defined reproductive justice as the human right to First, decide if and when you will have a child and the conditions under which you will give birth or create a family. Second, the human right to decide if you will not have a child and your options for preventing or ending a pregnancy. Third, it's the human right to parent with the necessary social supports in safe environments and healthy communities and without threat of harm from individuals, organizations, or the government. And fourth, it's the human right to bodily autonomy from any form of sexual or reproductive oppression. And those four tenets um, that um, crystallize the reproductive justice framework is my tip for today. Can we take uh, what you just said and can we uh, put it on our social media? We'll make like a graphic and we'll quote you and we'll put it up there because I think that's a beautiful way to put this. And that's why Black Lives Matter to sexual health. Yeah, it's perfect. Spring? Me? Okay, my tip? Okay. Uh, Wow, I'm still digesting. So much went on today. Um, (laughs) uh, But but my tip today is I want, I wish everybody in their brains, you could just put like a stop. Like if you view something, if you see something that's racially charged, if you see something that doesn't seem right, I wish everyone could just put a pause in their brain. Not like even a whole second, but a half second pause where you're like, wait, hold on. Is this some part of a system of racism or a system of marginalization or a system of disadvantage or a system of privilege? Like any of those questions, it's super quick. And as soon as you know that it is, you found something that we need to address or something that we need to talk about. Because in our day-to-day lives, hundreds of times, little teeny things are happening all around us that are part of that system. And we have the power to address them, right? We have something like you, there's something that you can do every single day. Uh, so for me, like my, my little tip today is like, just put a little stop in your head when things are going on, when things seem charged, when someone says something that is upsetting or racist or uh, prejudiced, just put a little stop in and say like, where did this come from? 
if they're asking a question, like, where did this question come from? And then the next step is, well, what's something that I can do to start dismantling whatever got us to this point? So for me, it's just train your brain to put a little stop in before you react and put a little stop in and ask yourself those questions like, where is this coming from? Is this about privilege? Is this about discrimination? And then once you look at the world from that lens, it becomes a lot easier for you to start parsing out like these are the things that I need to address. These are some things that I can actually do. So that's it for me. Okay, Spring? Yeah. Um, And I think that, you know, it's really overwhelming to start to think like, um, what can I do? Like, I mean, we had this hour long conversation today where we barely even scratched the surface. I mean, we were talking about sexual health and we didn't even talk about access to healthcare. And like, I mean, there's so many things that we like didn't even get into yet. And, um, so I understand like this can feel like, what am I supposed to do about this? Like, what am I individually supposed to do? And, um, and I'm, I'm first of all, really excited, you know, to have this conversation even more in depth next week when we talk about how to be an ally and like how to really do a lot of these things. But, um, but there's some really also great resources out there to really direct like very specific things you can do. And one of the ones that, um, I'll share in the show notes for today is, um, this, uh, Google Doc um, that's about like things that you can do like every day in June. And it's like, if you have 10 minutes a day, here is something you can do like every day in June to educate yourself and start to like actively make change um, in the Black Lives Movement. And if you have 20 minutes every day, these are all the things. And if you have 45 minutes every day, these are all the things. And there's something for every single day and it's like mapped out for you. And it's so cool because we need resources like that to really give us concrete things and to, you know, really set aside time each day to make those changes because it does feel overwhelming. And if you, if you don't also set aside time to do it, you're not going to do it. So that's the second part of it is like, how do we break it down? And also then how do we make sure that we're setting aside time to think about this, to educate ourselves about it and to actually take action? Um, so that's, that's what I want to share today. And I would love for people to go check that out. And, um, and you don't have to start on the first day of June. You can start, you know, on the 15th day of June and then do the others later or whatever. Like, uh, so just get into it. <laughs> awesome. There's so many great resources that are available now. There are more resources available to attack uh, systemic racism today that are available, that are easy to find, that are on the internet, that in any other point in American history. If you want to make a change, there are resources. And I like that Springs said, educate yourself. Educate yourself, people. There's there's just a ton of resources. You listen to us today, but we just scratched the surface. There's a ton of other materials. We'll link some other materials in the show notes as well, just so you have access to additional uh, additional information. I'll just add this: if if any of anyone here follows Selena Gomez, I don't. I don't really know who she is, but I learned she has the the largest IG following. She is like, it's it's insane. I think it's like a 79 million or something people follow her or something, some outrageous number. And, and she allowed Black Lives Matter to, um, it's called take over her account this week. So if you follow Selena Gomez in IG in Instagram, you can get an education about Black Lives Matter from some of the, the true experts. So check her out. I just followed her. (laughs) It was brilliant. And it was a Harvard professor and who connected her to these these wonderful 
Black Lives Matter activists and scholars. So. Thank you, Selena Gomez. I never thought I'd say that on our show, but <laughs> go figure, yeah. right? Yeah. No assumptions. All right. <laughs> Well, Lynn, thank you so, 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 so much for being here today. Thank you for chatting with us, sharing your experiences and really helping us kind of get into some of these questions. And we're going to continue this conversation, uh, I mean, forever, but hopefully not forever. (laughs) Hopefully there'll be an endpoint, but uh, we'll be continuing it for quite a while on our show. But thank you so much for being here. Uh, It was amazing having you. I'm sure our listeners are going to love listening to what you had to say. Um, Yeah. It's a pleasure to join you both. Thank you for having me. And Black Lives Matter. (laughs) Black Lives Matter. Yes. Uh, If you have any questions about this show or want have any follow-up questions or need any help uh, digesting it, um, feel free to reach out to us. If you have any other questions about sex, love, relationships, sexual health, Black Lives Matter, um, you can send us an email. We're thesexwrap at gmail.com. That's wrap with a W. You can call us at 413-I-WRAP-IT. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Sex Wrap. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good day. Black Lives Matter. Bye. For everything that you were too afraid to ask at home, too embarrassed to ask at school, or just too af- Music for this episode provided by the ever-elusive and mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.